This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Over the years, International Women's Day has meant a lot of things to a lot of different people around the world. On the heels of Boko Haram's gruesome kidnapping of hundreds of thousands of young women and girls in villages abroad, it also meant how do we go back and find our girls in destitute circumstances. To others, it has meant a moment to celebrate the progress and pride that women entrepreneurs, civil advocates, and also maternal health advocates have realized over the years. And for others, it's a good chance to take a pause, take a beat, and recognize that the progress that we've witnessed is not progress enough. No matter where you are on International Women's Day or any headlines that you see about it, or maybe it's never even come across your radar, it has meant a lot in terms of pride, focus, and symbolism. But this year, it also marked a day of action not just words, for a new movement that emerged with a specific eye at unveiling the ridiculous and often too rampant instance of sexual abuse, workplace harassment, and broader inequities realized in very sector-specific ecosystems of Silicon Valley and its broader tech interests, venture capital interests, and entrepreneurial interplay. Today on American Enough, we're joined by the two co-founders of the Moving Forward movement to discuss, discuss specifically why this movement is an important way to sustain energy and momentum, not just for International Women's Day and moments of symbolism throughout the year, but also in terms of redressing lots of ailments that have plagued one very specific sector focus out here in the Silicon Valley. In many respects, 2017 marked a year of transparency and awareness around a broad swath of revelations that roiled not just the entertainment industry, but ranging from news outlets, including PBS's Charlie Rose and the Today Show's Matt Lauer, all the way to the Harvey Weinstein allegations of sexual impropriety with almost seemingly generations of women in the entertainment space. And it also underscored what has always been known and perhaps too artfully hushed away about the tech sector, that workplace harassment, the inability to advance or this without this concept of engaging someone that might have money or might have power over somebody, and the broader fear that there's not exactly good ways to report these instances when they come up or preemptively tackle them, have all been understood truths of each of these sectors. But now 2018 is that moment of action to redress them and do something about it. So in this moment of time in which we shift from revelations to progress and momentum, what's actually changed? How have movements like Moving Forward been able to redress either sector-specific challenges or zooming out more broadly, speaking to both the progress and the progress that's yet to be realized when you take a look at a day like International Women's Day? More importantly, how do we realize and measure what that has meant for our economy and for our notion of equality when just as recently as this morning, new revelations come to light about whether or not Uber has continued to have discrimination allegations against it with recent revelations that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or EEOC is also looking into, looking into their broader workplace practices. Joining us today are Cheryl Yuhoi and Ginny Foz. 
both co-founders of the Moving Forward movement. Cheryl herself is a Chinese-Malaysian entrepreneur, board member, and speaker and angel investor living in San Francisco. And she herself has not only stuck her neck out to tell stories of how the impropriety may be impacting the way that we build companies and build our innovative movements, but has also taken her innovative insights and made sure that government-funded agencies that can support entrepreneurship ranging from the United States to Malaysia and the ASEAN countries are all connected with the, that common fabric that inspires entrepreneurs. And Ginny Faz has spent a long time out in Silicon Valley with roles ranging from leading senior marketing teams at Glow to leading engineering efforts at Uber and, in my favorite element of her bio, also interned for NPR's All Things Considered. Cheryl and Ginny, thanks so much for joining American Enough. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So, I, you know, I think one thing that was a very special element of 2017 was the almost universal and what felt like an overnight revelation of the what you know what was summarized as the me too movement that was also kind of later characterized as the times up movement um a series of wrongs that were brought to light by very high profile and powerful actors across a range of sectors and frankly um with the auda- only brought to light because of the audacity of uh, numerous folks who decided to put themselves out there, speak to reporters, and really call out these shenanigans and this uninformed behavior. Um, But as the New York Times described, if 2017 was that Berlin Wall-like moment, um, we also have to ask ourselves in 2018, after you reveal those issues, um, what do we actually do to move forward? And my understanding is that the movement you both co-founded Moving Forward, um, or I should say hashtag Moving Forward, um, is designed to seize upon that watershed moment um, and cut across gender harassment, workplace discrimination, immigration targeting, and just general unconscionable actions in the in the workplace. But it does so with a very specific eye towards a specific sector. Um, what is it, in your opinion, uh, that's unique to sort of the not just Silicon Valley culture, but maybe we should say zooming out the startup and entrepreneurial culture um, in tech that makes the the venture capital to entrepreneur um, to just workplace feedback loop a little bit more ripe for these kinds of challenges. And, and what's unique about this space that made you both want to target it intently? Yeah, so it definitely it does apply across the tech industry. Um, everywhere uh, around the the world, actually. So, although women uh, across you know the tech industry are forced to deal with sexism and harassment, and th- this has been going on for decades, this situation for uh, startup founders specifically is more isolating than most. Because in order to succeed in Silicon Valley or or anywhere else in the tech world, founders must gain favor with uh, VCs, venture capitalists, uh, and investors. So, and any any first-time founder of fundraising would know that you, you tend to get a hundred rejections before finally getting someone to put in that first check um, that says yes. And oftentimes, VCs want to spend time outside their office environment to get to know what motivates founders, why they're passionate about solving the problem, and and so founders end up pitching investors at every opportunity that they get. And these meetings end up at coffee shops, bars, restaurants, um, conferences, meetups, networking events, social events, sometimes parties. So um, this uh, and and this lends to sometimes uh, toxic 
environments that can feel toxic to women. Uh, and as, as Ellen Powell's 2015 lawsuit against VC firm Klein Perkins revealed as well that, you know, in, in her case, those environments are, uh, have been revealed to be pretty toxic, uh, as well as in my own experience. Um, and I think partner VC relationships are particularly challenging because they're not governed by legal policies as they would be for employees within a workplace. So and entrepreneurs who, who may have endured harassment don't really have the support of an HR department or even the protection of the EEOC and investors who you know repeatedly abuse their power do not face mm-hmm. any consequences which could embolden them even more and this creates an enabling culture within tech that you know has seeped through for, for a long time. And you know it's it's especially tricky when the tech space is so male dominated. Um, I think men outnumber women eight out of ten, and so this gender imbalance has created some issues. So when we started moving forward, um, it really is a movement to, uh, or it really is a side project and a movement to uh, to encourage VC firms to explicitly define what's acceptable versus unacceptable behavior uh, in the formal policy that applies not just to their own employees at the firm, but also to entrepreneurs pitching them um, or any contractor for that matter, um, and also provide a mechanism of accountability to founders uh, to um, so that when when something is being reported to the firm, uh, founders feel safe that there's no retaliation um, and uh, that action would be taken. So it's it's only the first step, um, but at least we think that this uh, launching moving forward is a, at least a forcing function for these firms to consider um, discrimination, harassment issues, and to commit to better behavior. And and also more importantly, being transparent about what they would do when faced with um, someone with that behavior. And those just to double click on on the kind of substance of what the ask is of of the venture firms, um, those are policies of appropriate behavior and codes of conduct that you would like to see these VC firms uh, apply as they take a look at their own interactions with entrepreneurs asking them for investments, or is it something that you hope those VC firms will also encourage when they actually make an investment in a company and that company tends to grow under the watch of that venture fund? Uh, Put another way, is this something that you want to see apply and incubated within the cultures of companies that spin out of a venture investment, or would you like to see the actual venture capital Capitalists themselves be the ones who core who are core to honoring this code of conduct. Uh, it has to go both ways, in, in our opinion, because if the venture uh, the, the venture fund doesn't have a policy that applies to um, us entrepreneurs. How can they uh, encourage their own portfolio companies to apply them? Right, um, and and I I think uh, de- definitely all the tech firms should also have their own internal policy. I think we're just moving forward with specifically addressing a very tricky um, relationship between VCs and, and entrepreneurs, uh, founders pitching them because that's just not like governed by, there, there's no formal relationship there and it's the, the trickiest part. But absolutely, I think we have many goals and this is just a starting point. Yeah, and and to echo the the starting point idea, we've been very direct about what we believe the baseline is, 
um, for being a firm that um, is inclusive. And, and we've defined that baseline as you have a policy that applies to, to your relations with entrepreneurs. It's not just for people inside your firm. And it explicitly defines discrimination and harassment. And then it specifies what your firm will do if those behaviors come to light. Um, and, and once the firm does that, they become part of our moving forward community. And then within the community, after firms have made that commitment, we're seeing really amazing additional commitments spun out of that. And a number of firms have created templates or created training sessions for their entrepreneurs to use in their own portfolio companies to enhance diversity and inclusion efforts there. And that's something that we love and we're convening our, our VC community to discuss amongst themselves how, how can we create structures like this in every firm. Um, but right now, the, the requirement baseline to join is about the VC firm having a policy that includes entrepreneurs um, in the code of conduct and, and in um, how harassment and, and discrimination are defined. Um, and then beyond that, we see this blossoming into um, portfolio companies themselves having such policies um, because of the influence their VC firms have on, on what those policies should look like. That's fantastic. And I, and I think one thing that's particularly interesting about this approach is that there's an elegance in its simplicity. And um, obviously, there's nothing simple about this challenge. But the call for transparency, um, not just a commitment to broad principles, but specifically asking firms to be reflective of what they're doing, how they can connote a cultural change and a systemic change in the way they view the world, and then share that with the public kind of makes them inherently on the hook for for those behaviors and practices. Um, in some respects, that sense of transparency is very core to uh, you know, what we tend to celebrate in this country, this notion of an open, deliberative conversation that we have with one another is often sometimes transparency, the best disinfectant to a problem. But it's also a very meaningful and productive way to debate and litigate specific approaches or best practices that are created from um, that exposure and the trading of notes around what's being exposed and shared with others. So how has that sort of crowdsourced approach played out um, in the in the few months that uh, moving forward has taken off. We, we know that um, at least by a previous count, it's probably even higher now, that at least more than 40 venture capital firms in Silicon Valley, including Greylock Partners, Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia, Foundry, and beyond, um, are making these policies more transparent. They're honoring your commitment and putting them online. Have you found that in this crowdsourced kind of transparent approach that individual companies are coming up with their own standards based off of their thesis on how they view the world? Or as some have posted and others have caught up to post as well, their their codes of, of uh, approach and practices here, have you found like a, an open dialogue that sort of um, gets to what a standard best practice is across the firms? Yeah, so, so you're right that we launched with over 40 firms, and then that included a number of the big names in venture capital, right? The Andreessen Horowitz's, the Sequoia, Foundry, Greylock, et cetera. Um, we're really excited to report that we've actually grown to over 100 VC firms participating, um, and, and that's just been in the past kind of three months since we've launched. Um, and, and again, participation moving forward means that you have published a policy that explicitly defines what is acceptable behavior and what is not. And you've created reporting lines for founders. A reporting line is, you know, if I, as a founder in my relations with VCs, uh, a VC I'm working with, have an issue or, or feel that um, discrimination or harassment is happening, how do I raise that? Um, and, and a reporting line is uh, either you call this person or you call this third party or you email this hotline or, or whatever. Um, and and we, we've seen a variety of different things that, that firms have done there. 
Um, so as, as to the, the power of open sourcing, um, each of the firms we work with um, develops a policy and then gives us permission to publish their policy on our website, which is centermovingforward.org. Um, and so if you go to our webpage, you'll see, you know, 100 plus examples of policies that DC, DC firms have put together to address um, harassment and discrimination specifically. Um, and, and there are two real um, powers behind the open source approach. Um, the, the first is that for founders who are considering raising money, um, they have a one-stop shop. They can come to our website and see a number of the, the most influential and, um, and prestigious firms' policies and, and explore those and, and have that as part of their mental calculus when they're deciding who do they want to raise from and who do I want advising my company and the culture of, of um, the group I'm putting together. Um, and then secondly, it's a really invaluable resource for venture capital firms themselves because most people are putting together these policies for the first time. Like policies that address relations with third parties in venture, for the most part, have not existed up, in, up until this movement has really encouraged creating those. Um, and, and so in coming to our website, if you're, you're creating this policy for the first time or you have a draft that, that is, you know, um, working right now, but you know it could be better, you have a hundred other examples of, of what firms have done to, to think about being really proactive here. Um, and we find that the firms we work with are, are actively learning from each other just by having access to each other's work. And, and that approach is – it's a really good point to make in terms of a lot of this work being crafted from the ground up. Um, it's novel both in its thought and it's it's being derived of sort of a, a new inflection point in America's history where both – Tech field, sorry, tech is almost ubiquitous um, in terms of how products interact with our daily lives. But but tech as a community, as a concept, is starting to take on a lot of different veneers. Um, you know, to some people, it might represent uh, how jobs get offset in the future. If you think about the automation side of tech, to other people, it's sort of a modern renaissance in which um, this information and knowledge economy is reverberating throughout the world. And it's an exciting uh, period in which anyone with the basically an internet connection and an idea can scale and start their own business. Um, but another veneer of tech is this sense of responsibility it ought to have for the communities that it's touching. Um, and that's not just the downstream product. It's not just when, you know, Facebook intersects with the way we consume news. And then as a result, there's a congressional hearing about how that works. Um, but rather at the very, very early stages where you're trying to inculcate, and as you mentioned earlier, create this sense of duty and responsibility in the values that we choose to ascribe to the companies that may disrupt the world around us and create massive scale change, but do so in a way that's inclusive, that's mindful, that's intentional. That is a an important ask and a vital ask of any company, I imagine, that that is born in this day and age, um, not just tech. But when you think of the tech sector, you're you're thinking inherently about this challenge that you mentioned at the top, which is that people with those ideas and it, people who are really excited about those ideas, they still need money to scale those ideas. And, and therein lies the entrepreneur to tech uh, sorry, entrepreneur to VC relationship. But for younger companies, maybe companies that are still very much still in the stage of that idea being sketched on the back of a cocktail napkin, it, it some people may say, okay, 
even though we should be investing in all these different policies of inclusion in my startup, my startup right now is just me and and two people in a WeWork space, or my startup doesn't necessarily have the time to adhere to core values and core principles that could be mindful of how the workplace culture looks like, because it would be a luxury to be able to even have a workplace culture in the first place and get to a point where you have to worry about culture. But right now, I'm just focused on my algorithm. I'm just focused on my product. I'm just focused on raising a, a round, whether that's an angel round or an upcoming seed round. How do you sort of square this notion of responsibility and the ethos that the moving forward movement is pushing forward when you're talking to younger companies and younger firms where that's not necessarily on your radar. I mean, I know that your work is targeted with the initial eye at the VC community, but I think, as you said, Ginny, it's really important to make sure that, that those values that in get incubated there also pass downstream to the younger companies that are spun out of those investments. So is that a false trade-off that I'm describing? Is that something that is under-informed to even assume that smaller companies wouldn't necessarily look at this? Or have you found that that's an important challenge to think through as you try and evangelize the importance of the moving forward movement? Well, the um, the issue you're describing as far as, you know, uh, small companies not not making time to prioritize this work. Um, again, what, moving forward works with VC firms. We don't work with individual startups. Um, but but we have encountered that same um, frustration from smaller VC firms saying, look, like, you know, our VC firm just has one or two partners and we're so small that we don't really have time to put together these resources, but but we still want to be part of hashtag moving forward. Um, so so what do, what do we do or, or where does that leave us? Um, and, and our stance on that is um, it's not a viable excuse that you're organization is too small to think about this. Like if you are going to be um, supporting portfolio companies and deploying capital, it's really important that these values are part of your specific culture. Um, and you don't need to be reinventing the wheel every time. In fact, we refer our, um, the VC firms who get in touch with us who don't yet have materials in place, we'll send them a swath of different resources that they can use to put together their first version of their materials. And, and a lot of that is drawing on work done by other amazing organizations and ventures. So um, the, National, the National Venture Capital Association and VCA, um, Project Include, and the Venture Inclusion Network each have published amazing resources on how to start out here, um, and including free and open source policy templates that firms can use as their first version, as their starting point. Um, and, and these materials are not comprehensive and they're not individualized and specific for um, firms themselves, but they're a really fair place to start and, and a starting point and having a policy in place is far better than having no policy at all. Um, so, so that's something that we really emphasize in the work we do with firms. And um, our organization has also uh, collaborated with um, folks who have made this work their careers and who have really amazing thought leadership in this area, people like Frida Kapor Klein and Ellen Powell. Um, and, and together with them, we've published a few guidelines that VCs should consider when they're writing a policy for the first time. Um, and, and often we'll have firms kind of write that first policy and, and send it to us and, and we'll provide feedback until we feel that the policy is at um, the, the baseline standard we require to join moving forward. Um, so, so the work is, is hugely important and we don't think that um, size of firm or kind of earliness of of uh, initiative is a, a viable excuse to not consider this, um, especially when the resources exist and, and when um, there are people and organizations who are trying to help direct um, new groups to these resources.
Yeah, and that, that's incredible. I, and I think you. And I would uh, also ahead. like to point out that um, when you know the Me Too movement started in tech um, last year, in the summer of 2017, it was uh, four female founders, Min Wang, Susan Ho, Lee Su, and Lindsay Mayer, who stepped up and exposed Justin Kalbach, one of two partners at Binary Capital, for sexually harassing them repeatedly over a number of years. So, uh, you know, and we knew that Binary um, Capital uh, is, uh, is co-founded by only two partners and as a small firm, although a $300 million firm. And that um, exposure has led to a closure of their fund, uh, which, you know, has brought, has massive um, financial consequences to the limited partners who invested in that fund. So there are severe financial consequences to the, the venture industry too when these things happen. So whether or not big or small, in fact, small firms um, even need policies uh, even more because they act, they oftentimes don't have a, an HR department. Um, and as, as we saw last year when uh, all these Me Too stories broke out, uh, unfortunately, because there was a lack of a reporting line policy governing it, um, founders tended to turn to media to tell their story. And that's oftentimes not ideal for the victim themselves uh, or for the VC firms. So it is it is not um, the solution, and, and which is why going forward we uh, we decided that you know the, the policy and the reporting line to begin with is the the most important point, uh, most important things that we wanted to see uh, exist within an venture firm. That, that that's that's helpful to um to know and i think i am actually very heartened to hear that you all offer the moving forward movement offers that kind of iterative feedback loop particularly with a new policy that might get created and crafted um guidance as to how to hit that minimum threshold baseline that you were speaking to in terms of it being fit for purpose and also you know fit for the movement and what it's trying to encourage uh, I'm curious, you know, zooming out just a little bit, uh, what you all have built here is incredible, uh, not just because it, it tackles an important conversation, um, but it also surgically gets to the heart of um, how you actually reimagine the world around you by making sure people step up and, and apply themselves to a new ethos and a new philosophy of how we should be treating one another and respecting one another. It, you know, that sense of movement seems to have hit a, a, you know, a fever pitch in this country, particularly on the heels of the most recent election, um, but also just in general, this notion that you can mobilize entire communities, entire generations of people, uh, leverage social media, leverage digital media operations to really build awareness, uh, to your point, Cheryl, beyond just going to the, to the, to the press. And, and that conversation is a pretty important one um, for any movement to have, to be able to harness the momentum of others, um, to to build awareness and capture the attention of, frankly, some pretty powerful firms, in this case, you know, the venture capital community, uh, who could be applying their time and energy to a million other things. So on the one hand, I, you know, I want to both applaud the work that you're doing. But on the other hand, I imagine doing that and building that sense of, of movement overnight is no easy feat. Uh, in many respects, it's the most 
core aspect that we have of American identity to be able to see a problem and motivate change just by two people getting together with the team and organizing for that change. But how how have you sort of seen um, either struggles to build that awareness around your movement um, or how have you sort of witnessed what it's like to actually build a movement in this country? Has it been a difficult prospect? Has it been something that came second nature as an out of an extension of the momentum of what happened in 2017. I'm just sort of curious what the anatomy of a movement looks like when you're sort of building it from nothing overnight. Yeah, I mean, it may seem overnight, but in reality, it's months of discussions. And, you know, this this was a topic of, you know, dinner conversations at a lot of founder dinners that we've been at. And so it keeps coming up. Uh, in terms of like how all these things were happening, but everyone keeps uh, talking about what, well, what's being done, you know, uh, aside from, uh, you know, a lot of uh, pledging on Twitter and whatnot, there hasn't really been any real action. And I guess that was what prompted uh, a group of, a small group of entrepreneurs like us to do something about it. Um, I mean, at the heart of it, I think it is, um, Something that helps us uh, get this movement going is something called new power in a way uh, versus old power. Uh, so new power leverages, as you mentioned, social media and uh, the the masses to get behind uh, an idea or a movement. Uh, really, it is about getting like-minded people together and um, broadcasting our mission and then our vision of goals to a wider community and getting them behind it. And that happens. Um, it uh, kind of like like as with any new product, it does get a small group of like-minded people to initially support it. So moving moving forward, started um, when we we got like uh, maybe ten VCs uh, of the top VCs who are on board, and um, Greylock, Sequoia, um, Platinum Startups, TechStars were some of the early ones that. Uh, join in um, Upfront Ventures. Uh, so a lot of firms uh, from the East Coast and the West Coast. And uh, from then onward, it was pretty grassroots too. So once we got like 10, 20 of the top venture firms committing to publishing their policies and establishing a reporting line, uh, we sent out a massive email to a lot of our entrepreneur friends who have raised money from very prominent VCs and got them to spread the word to their VCs and ask them to join in. So a lot of it was sort of a top-down and then bottoms-up approach. So it took both strategies to to get up to about 40 plus 47 firms, I believe, when we launched. And um, after that, more and more firms uh, heard about it. And um, uh, we believe that at the heart of it, VCs do want to do the right thing and do something about it. but Oftentimes, we get asked the question, we don't know where to start. And as Jenny said, we've been pointing them to some resources that's already out there, a lot of templates available, a lot of resources available, um, and that has definitely helped. And so now we're we're at 100 and I believe 107 firms um, that have joined on, although um, we know that there's 700 VC firms in the U.S. at the minimum. And so we're, we're, we're barely... You know, halfway through all the VC firms, and one of our goals 
for uh, moving forward is to to get at least half of the U.S. firms to join on. Um, the encouraging thing too is that we've been seeing some international firms uh, come on board from Australia, and we're working on oh, wow. um, also VC firms in Southeast Asia and Europe next. Oh, that's incredible. Um, and and you know, one thing that's interesting is beyond sort of the face of of the movement, and I and I recognize that this has probably been you know something that, as you said, was not realized in the blink of an eye. It took a lot of work and effort and energy, uh, both in its creation to in the point of inception, but also uh, as you've sustained this progress both at home here in the U.S. and abroad. Um, I imagine a lot of it is a lot of the the work that went into thinking about moving forward was also how we in America um, take a look and perceive what gender-based discrimination looks like or workplace harassment looks like. I think all too often um, it evokes a certain uh, archetype of a picture of what it means when you hear those terms um, and who is being targeted in those instances. Um, maybe one uh, has an image of someone being inappropriately approached in the workplace. Maybe that someone is typically um, a female on the uh, on the aggrieved side, and maybe it's a man, a man in power on the aggressor side. Um, but moving forward extends far beyond that, right? This is actually a perception issue on uh, uh, everything. Sorry, not perception, a, a targeted issue on everything from the intersectionality of race, of age, um, of sexuality, whether you're able or disabled, um, your family status, uh, your immigration status, many, many, many dimensions of identities and experiences that can run into elements of discrimination or that can run into challenges along the way. So um, in, for, in terms of what it means to experience discrimination today, to to have an inappropriate interaction, it's not just the instance of you know a guy inappropriately asking out an employee or a potential um, entrepreneur that he may invest in out on a date. It could extend far beyond that um, and and address different levels of inappropriateness. Can you just sort of walk us through what you think that kind of modern face of harassment looks like in America today, and why you decided to widen the aperture to capture all of that? Uh, because I think all too often we associate, you know, whether it's the Time's Up movement or the Me Too movement with one very, very specific veneer of what it looks like to be, um, you know, treated this way in the workplace. But frankly, moving forward underscores that it's quite more than just that. Absolutely. And thank you so much for pointing that out. That is at the core of when we started this. So we made it very clear to not uh, let it just be a gender issue. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, like a lot of these movements like Time's Up and Me Too movement are associated with um, females, uh, first and foremost. Um, uh, maybe it's because it's just the, the easier inequality to call out um, in terms of how there are 50% of our population are, are female. Uh, and then we have the minority groups and underrepresented groups and whatnot in terms of there's so many dimensions, right? Race, economic uh, um, status and uh, age, even and um, sexual sexuality and all that, which is a lot sometimes a lot tougher to call out specifically. But absolutely, I think the um, the reason why we labeled it um, anti anti harassment and discrimination anti discrimination policies is because we also wanted to address discrimination issues uh, within the the tech industry. So. 
the reporting line should also apply to to that um, any sort of discrimination and and uh, that any entrepreneur faces. And even as men, we've heard uh, stories and personal accounts of men being sexually harassed or discriminated against. It's definitely not just a, a gender issue. That, that that's great to hear, and I and I think the it's really important that all of us recognize. And I think Jenny, you were sort of speaking this, uh, speaking to this earlier when I asked about you know smaller establishments thinking about this um, or not thinking about this because their focus is elsewhere. In order to really start inculcating this concept of inclusion and appropriateness, not just as a value that we ascribe towards, but really just as a reflex and instinct of how all of us operate, it will take a concerted effort to educate and define these terms as more than just what you or I might perceive harassment to look like based off of images we see in the media or headlines we read about. And it takes a broader swath of stakeholders to get involved here, right? This is um, not just the HR department that's working on inclusion and diversity. It's not just um, women who might have um, experienced this to a higher ratio degree than men. Um, it's really getting everybody to the table to understand why this is an important element of not just a good workplace culture, but frankly, the ability to be productive and be competitive as a company, as a as a uh, industry and as a nation, because unless we create these uh, standard setting platforms in which there is equity, in which there is a sense of comfort, and there isn't a sense of pay to play by exchanging power for opportunity, um, unless we do that, we will we will hamper our own ability to grow and, you know, bring forward the flourishing tech that that we've benefited from um, in, in this recent kind of more modern entrepreneurial revolution. Uh, but but how how do you actually encourage stakeholders to get involved here that maybe aren't direct uh, don't have direct equity in this space? I guess put another way, you know, are there steps that people that maybe aren't part of the VC community can take to celebrate the kind of thinking that you're you're trying to socialize across the world through moving forward? Are there steps that um, young men and uh, people who maybe are often posi- in positions of this power or maybe aren't exposed to these challenges uh, in their day-to-day livelihoods, are there steps they can take? Are there steps that stakeholders of all stripes can take to make sure that they're playing a role in this movement as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, and and- I, th- I think there are two um, big pieces to that. The first is in the way we work with VCs and in the way we coach VCs, part of our advice for how to put together a policy is making sure you're getting the right perspectives around the table. Um, so so we have guidelines where we challenge VCs to, as they're writing the first policy, make sure they have five people at the table who um, represent some dimension of diversity that, that the um, partners of the firm don't have. Um, and, and we also encourage in the way you write your policy to bake in really tangible examples um, that come from situations that people from these different backgrounds may have encountered in the past and articulate how the firm will handle those situations. Um, And and in that way, all of these um, diverse and varied experiences become um, officialized in the policy. And and there's also kind of forethought before these, um, there are so many instances of this happening in the firm. There's there's a, a moment when everybody can decide what is fair and, and, and how um, how the, how systematically and um, the the firm should proceed. Um, so so that's part of of the way we work with firms is, is making sure that diverse perspectives are on the table and also that diverse perspectives 
um, kind of situations are baked into the policy itself. Um, separate from that, there, there's kind of this question of generally how, how can people of different backgrounds be involved in this movement? And something that's been really amazing to see um, in, in the launch of Moving Forward is who's been talking about it and who's been excited about it. Um, and, and on the day our movement launched on, on International Women's Day of this year, we saw a blog post from a number of men and women throughout the VC industry talking about um, the movement and what it means to them and what it means to their firm. Um, and, and we actually saw more blog posts published that day from men in VC than for women in VC. And, and part of that is there are more men in VC. Um, but, but part of that is that um, <laughs> yeah. this is an issue that's important to everyone. And, and we saw really prominent venture capitalists like um, Rob Hayes at First Round Capital or uh, Mark Suster at Upfront Ventures publishing their uh, opinions of the movement and opinions of ways we should move forward. And um, that kind of statement coming from all corners of the industry is something that um, we see as, as really pivotal and, and really kind of igniting more excitement and, um, and action in this movement. Um, yeah, and Vikram, you mentioned uh, inclusion just now. I'd like to call out that because we, we, I guess sometimes we get confused uh, uh, or confusion around uh, these two topics. So I'd like to call it that the harassment and lack of inclusion are two related but very different issues within tech. So the, the Me Too stories within tech in, in last uh, 2017 were uh, mostly of sexual harassment um, or discrimination that often involves an abuse of power, where the victim, usually a female founder, raised unwanted advances, uh, or and were um, you know concerned about retaliation if they rejected the, the VC or investor, whereas um, a lack of diversity or an inclusion is a result of a very homogeneous group of people that propagates itself and where subconscious biases affect who you decide to let in or fund and who not to. Um, so, the, you know, like the one is really bad behavior that is an active, uh, a conscious act, while the other one is a form of group thing decision making that leads to uh, doors being closed to hope of people. So there are two Think, uh, different but related issues um, to address bad behavior versus an, a very proactive uh, effort to uh, make your firm more diverse and inclusive. Um, so I guess back to your question about what um, you, you ask what men could do. Um, I, I guess, um, you know, men, men can um, mentor women and under, underrepresented minorities. Uh, but also because tech is such a male-dominated world, to encourage more more leaders to make the workplace a psychologically safe place for a diverse group of people, uh, like family-friendly for for new moms and whatnot, um, and also like in uh, go out of your circle to recruit uh, and ask for referrals because who you tend to know tend to look like yourself, right? So it's a work to go outside, but it is, in the end, uh, more worth it because a lot of studies have shown that more diverse teams um, do yield better results and performance. Um, and the other thing I'd say is uh, when I came up with my own uh, Me Too story in July of 2017, uh, the response I got out of that was really incredible. And surprisingly, over 60% of my uh, the emails and messages I received were actually from men who have daughters 
and who were thanking me for telling my story and um, for making the world a better place for their their daughters. Um, so this just made me think that it is our responsibility, men and women, to educate our sons and daughters about uh, fair treatment of women and minorities and teach them while they're young. And this is the chance where we can inculcate good values within them uh, and not uh, and be very aware of um, traditional stereotypical roles that could, um, you know, define uh, different groups of people. So I think that that is what I would um, leave you with. <laughs> No, that, that, that's a great insight and certainly one that I think we can all take to heart in terms of how we view our individual roles um, as part of this broader movement and effort. Because I think each of our actions, whether it's a, you know, a microaggression, an approach to mentorship, a even a, a slip of certain word choice in the workplace, um, that we don't necessarily realize all of those individual steps and component parts sort of ladder up into these broader experiences that, that you're trying to trip away at here through this movement. And I guess sort of one kind of concluding question that I have is this very concept of um, an individual name and a face and an identity being associated with these different movements um, have been very, very powerful in setting up a, a conversation. I mean, notably last year, um, a young woman named Susan Fowler wrote a blog about some of the challenges that she was facing at her employer company. Um, you've mentioned a few times now Ellen Powell, um, who has uh, not only uh, you know lit up a conversation across the world, frankly, but also used her bully pulpit to to breathe life into movements like Moving Forward, even write books about her experiences in the VC space um, or interacting with the VC community to to really address where the systemic challenges are, even on the entertainment side. Um, you know, Ashley Judd, uh, a famous actress, was was notably uh, a part of the Harvey Weinstein allegations. And Cheryl, even you pointed out your your own experiences in the space. How important is it that the movement is identified to the face of you know um, an an individual, uh, whether you call them a whistleblower, whether you call them an advocate, whether you call them um, just a leader and a community organizer? How important is that individual face? to create the energy and momentum that you need versus sort of the movement being about the very people that it's important to serve. I'm not saying that just because you attach a face or a name and an identity to a movement that it's only about that one person. Um, but really what was beautiful about the Time magazine cover uh, last year honoring some of these movements in America was that it was trying to celebrate all individuals that were aggrieved and giving them a safe space to be confident about exposing something and being and confident about the fact that the institutions that they're working for will actually redress and address that, which is exactly what the Moving Forward movement is, is aiming to underscore. Um, but sometimes in America, particularly with press cycles and media headlines, we get caught up in the narrative of the individual, mm -hmm. um, the individual to come forward, their name, their celebrity. Um, what have you guys learned in terms of standing up this movement so far? about threading that line between the individual actor versus sort of the broader community that you're looking after here? Well, I personally, I think every woman who stepped forward should be celebrated um, for their courage. It, it really isn't easy. And, you know, you become the target of trolls and, and whatnot. So sometimes people think it's, oh, you, you know, you're, you're famous, you're in Time Magazine and whatnot. But it really isn't like this. Um, and, and also not everyone can speak up and not everyone will. So sometimes, 
the individuals who do speak up become um, an image in, in terms of a role model and a source of strength for people who, who can't. Um, but also, I think more importantly, the there is a lot of strength in numbers. And I think that's the more, more important point where there is this moment of critical mass um, when you hear, um, when people hear enough enraging stories of harassment and discrimination that it becomes a cultural tipping point uh, and it becomes a movement because of, of these uh, all these women coming up to speak it, that, you know, culturally is no longer acceptable and no longer uh, okay to close a blind eye to it. Um, so, and, and also when more women come forward uh, to tell their stories, it becomes destigmatized. Um, because as we know in the past, when when women came forward with allegations of sexual harassment, they were the person who were, was blamed and not believed. It was a lot of victim blaming, and women paid the price to come forward. But now it's it's definitely a sea change. It's uh, a moment where uh, when people come forward to say Me Too, it's it's becoming accepted and it validates everyone's experience. So. Um, Susan Fowler, Ellen Powell, uh, Ninian Wang, all these uh, individual women who came out, uh, really it's just a representation of um, all other women who have experienced the same thing. And as human beings, sometimes we just need these representations. Um, so I, I think to, to answer your point, um, the individual story is important um, to, to, to give strength to other stories. Um, who may not, other women who may not be able to come up with their own story. That 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 makes um, a total sense, and I feel like when you consider the anatomy of a movement, um, you're absolutely right. We should be both celebrating um, the the broader picture here by recognizing individual plights and individual circumstances, and and that is sort of what has motivated moving forward and and really been able to, in my opinion harness the, the the progress that you've made, the incredible progress that you've made both here um, and increasingly around the world. Um, Cheryl, Jenny, thank you so much for your for your leadership on these issues and thank you for joining American Enough. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.